Good afternoon, and welcome to the How to Train Your Wagon podcast. I'm joined today by, by my wife, Kimberly. Today's guest is J.W. Stamp of Tigon Expeditions. J.W. operates adventure travel tours to Kyrgyzstan and Central Asia. I'm also joined today by my in-laws, Bob and Karen. So first, uh, please, a round of applause for our guest, J.W. Stamp. Today's episode is a little bit different than most shows. Usually, when I propose a destination like Montenegro, Moscow, or Iceland, I gauge the reactions based on how much my in-laws raise their eyebrows. Iceland, for example, received a seriously furled brow from a certain member of my family. But after some well-planned travel and successful trips, I've earned some degree of deference in discussing certain destinations. Today's episode, however, erased all that goodwill. In particular, when I first proposed Kyrgyzstan, I was greeted with, why does my son-in-law have it out for me? But during the course of today's episode, I'm confident that certain relatives will change their mind. Kyrgyzstan has been described as the American West on steroids when considering adventure travel set in an ancient nomadic civilization along the Silk Road. It also has been described as the Switzerland of Central Asia. JW, welcome. Howdy. Our North American audience may ask the question, why should a traveling family of three generations consider Kyrgyzstan? That is an excellent question. One of the reasons is it's so family friendly. Kyrgyz culture is very family oriented. And if you show up with multiple generations of your family to travel around there, the only, or the chief challenge, if maybe the only challenge you will face is what are you going to do with all the friends you will instantly have? Because that will speak to the family heart of so many different people that you're going to meet. It's really impressive. I've already taken multiple generations out on a single trip. And every time the response has been, yay, because it's so neat to be able to see that. And because we travel and stay at homes, whether it's homes in a village or homes in a yurt at a shepherd's camp, almost every one of those is going to be multi-generational as well. There will be small children. There will be the parents. There will be the grandparents. They still live together. The idea of the nuclear family as it's more common in the West, they still do multiple generations in one place. So when you come with multiple generations to visit them, they're going to think that's the coolest thing in, in the world, usually. I haven't seen any evidence to the contrary. Okay, great. Bob and, and Karen, did you want to ask them a question? Uh, maybe the perspective of why oh, Kyrgyzstan okay. from a, a three-generation perspective? I am curious that you say that part of the trip is we stay in homes. Are there homes large enough that can accommodate all seven of us, or would we be split up, or how would that go? Almost always, they will be large enough to, if they're going to take in guests at all, they will be large enough to house you all at the same time. Now, that may be, and probably will be in many cases, all in one very large room. Mm -hmm. But it's going to be a big room, what is usually called, they use the Russian word, zal. And okay. that's where all of the guests would sleep. Other homes that have gone into using a guest house as a business, it'll still be family-style meals, for example, but they might have separate bedrooms because that's what they think the foreign guests want, or at least that's what they're more used to. But frequently what you'll find is that families, the family itself that you're staying with, will stay multiple generations all in one big room, usually on the floor, not on the floor, they have what they call tushoks. And picture a seriously overstuffed quilt, and that really doesn't do it justice. If you've ever, 
you know, if you've been camping or you've seen these sleeping bag pads that they'll put on the ground, okay, picture that dialed up to 11 and then keep going. Uh, so there's several inches of padding between you and the floor. And that's what a lot of folks sleep on over there, grandparents all the way down to infants. And that's what you could end up doing, depending on, again, which guest house you're at. Some just say, yeah, it's my home. Come on in. I'll treat you like, oh, you're my second cousin twice removed type thing. Welcome to our home. Others who've been doing the guest house thing for a while might say, okay, we're going to add on some extra bedrooms for our guests to arrive in, and they'll get Western-style beds uh, of some kind to put in there. It varies, and it varies quite a bit, but usually you're going to see some variation on those two in the village. Up in the high country, at a yurt camp, you're on the floor. But, again, here I've joked that yurt camping spoils you for any other form of camping because it's I've been told it doesn't quite fit the definition of glamping, but by my standards, it comes awful close. Because a yurt isn't an ordinary tent. It's made out of this really thick wool felt. And it's incredibly ornately designed. So first off, it's very pretty in there. And secondly, on the floor, they start off with this really thick wool carpet called a shirtock, which is an art form unto itself. But again, lots of wool padding between you and the ground. And then they put the toshooks on top of that. So... True story, one time a few years ago, I was up with, my boys were a lot younger then, up at a yurt camp at, a, at an alpine lake, and we stayed at a different yurt camp than has been our habit, and these folks had decided that they were going to try and make the foreigners feel more comfortable, and they brought in these, what they thought were western-style bunks. They were plywood on four iron legs up off the ground. So, A, it's a lot harder <laughs> to sleep on than Tushuk's would have been on the ground, and B, now you've got cold air between your back and the ground. And so the first thing my boys tell me the next morning is, Dad, can we not stay here again? Because it's so much more comfortable to sleep in a more traditional format in a traditional yurt. It's more comfortable, it's warmer. And that is a really long answer to what was probably a simple question. So my apologies for that. No, thank you. You answered a lot. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. And I think a couple of different aspects will appeal back in the questions to come, but you and I have a common background insofar as you and I both attended a small monastery on a hill in the Rocky Mountains called the Air Force Academy. Uh-huh. So uh, I was curious, maybe you can say a little bit more about your background because that was on your website, TigonExpeditions.com, and you offered uh, some of the, the training you had gone through to, to be an adventure travel host and, and guide. Maybe you can share some of your personal story about what you did and what you're doing now and, and how you got into Kyrgyzstan specifically. Oh boy. First off, as you may have noticed from the website, once upon a time, I was an assistant professor of history. And so you got to be careful asking uh, me any historical question because, I'm oh, sorry, all right, short answer, Jeff, confine it to uh, three or four days worth. So yeah, I retired from the Air Force in 2011. I was I was teaching history at the Air Force Academy at our alma mater. And so that, that was a wonderful experience, although kind of trippy. When you first walk back into the classroom, Tom, and you may remember this feeling, walk back into the classroom and cadets always call the room to attention when an officer walks in. They call the room to attention and you, you can't help the memories. You're like, where? Oh, wait, they're talking about me. <laughs> and then you'll try to recover as fast as you can. After I retired, I did teach again at a school in, in Eastern Africa for a little bit, thoroughly enjoyed that. But uh, among other things, it presented some health challenges, things like dengue and multiple really bad sunburns on a regular basis. It tends to start you wondering about, uh, about some things. And we began to look around at other possibilities. And long story very short, 
years ago, I'd been in Afghanistan. And on my way in and out of Afghanistan, I had been through a country called Kyrgyzstan. And long story short, talking about that with my wife, we wound up there. I went through before, in between Africa and, and Central Asia, I went through a guide school in Colorado with my GI Bill. Believe it or not, you can do that. Thank you, American taxpayer. But under Colorado law, you can go to a hunting and fishing guide school as trade, I guess you call it vocational rehabilitation, something like that, a trade school. Uh, wonderful experience. And started Taigon Expeditions, initially studied the language, and then we started Taigon Expeditions in the, I guess it would have been spring of 16. Wow, time flies when you're not paying attention. That's tremendous. And so we refer to this as adventure travel. It's a little bit different experience than going to the Rhine Valley, for example, and sitting in a square or having a, a beer or a cafe. So describe what it means to say adventure travel in, in Kyrgyzstan, the sorts of things that people might consider when to go over there and experience. That's... Again, excellent question, Tom. Adventure travel, the way we've been using it as a working definition, might doing something that the average person would not think of as part of your vacation is definitely out of the box. It tends to be, from a Western vacation standpoint, it's not a normal cruise ship in the Caribbean, for example. It definitely tends to involve a lot more what we what you might call outdoorsy type stuff. So for example, we do quite a bit of horse trekking and I can come back to that in a little bit because the opportunities there are tremendous. If you're an equestrian enthusiast, Kyrgyzstan is paradise on earth. We also do fishing, hunting, wildlife photography, archeological tours, all the above. It does tend to have a fairly heavy outdoor emphasis that's the nature of the area in a lot of ways. Now, there are museums and some remarkable shopping opportunities, particularly in the capital in Bishkek. But for the most part, a lot of it tends to be outdoorsy, which to my way of thinking, especially for the sort of thing you're talking about, Tom, with a multi-generational, multi-family approach to travel, it's wonderful because there's going to be something for everybody. And you can vary the speed on the same day at the same time, you can vary the speed, so to speak, at which you approach what you're doing that day or where you're traveling. So it very much lends itself to a multi-generational family approach. Okay, that's great. I do think that's an accurate statement because when we were outside and we did a lot of things in Iceland and it was all more of a mother nature type of trip, I think that was our best family vacation when we were all together and we all had our own speeds of doing our own activities. But we ended up all in the same spot at the end. Correct. Correct. And just some examples of that from my own family. My daughter has become very proficient in her horsewomanship. And for example, so when we, the last time we went horse trekking as a family, just, this is also, we geek out on this so much that not only do we do this with clients, but we also do it. This is something we do as a family together. The last time we went as a family, the rest of us are just enjoying the view, walking along, and she would gallop back and forth across some of the smaller valleys on the trail we were taking up to this one high alpine lake. Gallop up and gallop back, gallop up and gallop back. Just give it the horse a chance to stretch its legs, so to speak. And she loved it and had a wonderful time. And like you said, we all wound up at the same place that night. So it was great. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. You can adjust the speed for different folks' interest level or maybe confidence level in certain things. Okay. Before we walk through some of the, the questions directed to the, the mechanics and, and what things look like from a day-to-day -day basis, Bob and Karen, did you have any questions you wanted to ask at this point? I would like to ask you more about the archaeological sites. I suppose you 
have a few of those and a lot of historic sites as well. Just could we expect to see some of that on this trip? Absolutely. It depends on how much you want to see. One thing I, I will point out in the case of our particular company, everything we do is custom made. So when you see one of our brochures or you go to our website, those are basically for ideas because yeah, you can take something right off the website and we're like, okay, fine, we can do that. I'll throw out some ideas later today, but basically it's pick and choose what you like. And then we put it all together. And it's again, everything we do, every single trip I've been on has been at least a little bit different because it's customized to the nature of the client. That's part of the nature of adventure travel is it reflects individual. So we tend to be very much about individual tour packages. Uh, we've been doing this now for several years. Like I said, I don't think I've ever done the exact same trip twice. I'm okay with that. In fact, I kind of like That's it. That's great. I have one more question about culture and religion. I understand that predominantly Muslim, uh, and that's fine. But if we were there for two weeks, what would we be expected to, or what kind of religious activities would we be involved in during a two week period? Because a Sabbath day is going to be in the middle of this somewhere. And how is that treated by the population there? And, and, and we don't want to disrespect them, but we want to be able to be a part of our Christian background too. Absolutely. I am very glad to hear you say that, sir. As far as I can tell, no one's ever given me a hard time. And I wear my Christian faith on my sleep. And no one has ever given me a hard time as far as taking a Sabbath to rest and to worship. That is also actually comparatively easily done. The hard part there isn't, shall we say, people getting upset. It's, well, we need to build that into the schedule before you arrive. Mm -hmm. Because there's, as opposed to, for example, traveling in, although that's maybe a bad example, but I'll say traveling in Paris is seeing a city, but there's so much in Paris, you could spend who knows how long a lifetime there. We're talking about traveling across parts of a country, maybe multiple countries, a lot of ground to cover. So you'd want to basically build that into the schedule before you arrived or else something would have to drop out because it our schedules tend to be a bit um, full because there's just so much to do and so much to see. And but otherwise, that, not a problem, sir. I think all of that is fine. I just was uh, concerned about disrespecting the, their culture and their religion. They, uh, from what I can tell, the, the folks I have met would not see your faith as a sign of disrespect to theirs. Now, obviously, people can do that, but... I don't think any of my guests ever have. And but you would school us and saying, oh no, that's not appropriate or Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Obviously, we want to be gracious guests as just as much as anyone I've ever worked with would want to be a gracious host or hostess as the case may be. And that goes back to Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So we would want to be a gracious guest as well as much as we would want them to be a gracious host. And there's nuances to how you can do that. It's it's actually fairly simple. I, I think I've been living there for a few years. What area do most of your clients hail from? Oh boy. We've had a number of Americans, quite a few folks from the States. We've also had folks from Europe. Oh my goodness. Norway, Denmark, Belgium. I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting folks. Spanish. So basically all over. Oh yeah. And that's not China. India, Australia, New Zealand, I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody and I'll apologize, but yeah, lots of folks from all over. If we would come there, we would not be putting ourselves into an anti-American climate. Oh, goodness, no, not, at least not that I've ever seen. 
I go everywhere in a cowboy hat and boots. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I can tell you real quickly a story, but well, some years ago, when I was out guiding a tour in, I'm known for the cowboy hat and boots. I found out just how much a few years ago. I was out guiding a tour in the mountains and my wife and kids were back in the capital city in Bishkek and she was getting a taxi to go, I, I don't remember where. And as she got into the cab with the kids, the taxi driver asked her, where was her husband? And at first my bride thought, okay, maybe this is a Muslim thing, woman out by herself, she wasn't sure. Turns out, no. The taxi driver says, oh, that's too bad. I wanted to meet the cowboy. So while on the one hand, you you will see how I do stand out there. I do. <laughs> but no one's ever been hostile. If anything, they're like, wow, how can I meet and talk to people? Generally, Kyrgyz culture has been, I found it to be almost universally friendly, outgoing, and actually laid back, so to speak. I realize that's a bit of a colloquialism, but you, you know what I'm saying? They're just friendly and outgoing, and especially because we learned Kyrgyz. So I've had to add in Russian, but we started off with Kyrgyz. And when people see yours truly, the foreigner speaking Kyrgyz, well, all of a sudden I got a new best friend. It's pretty cool, actually. Okay. From a logistics standpoint, what's the best way to arrange air travel to Kyrgyzstan? I'm trying to think. From the West, I want to say that there are airlines coming in from China as well and from Kazakhstan, but I don't know if there if the Kazakh airline goes all the way to the west. The three ways people come in are through Turkish Airlines through Istanbul. Emirates from Dubai has a discount version called Fly Dubai. They come to Bishkek. And then there's Aeroflot through Moscow. Okay. We have always taken Turkish, whatever folks want to do. We've had friends who've flown Aeroflot. I, I'm trying to remember if I know of anyone who's taken Emirates and it's escaping me at the moment, but I suppose I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, it depends on which way you want to go, uh, what route is going to be cheapest, most comfortable, which one you have the most miles with. It's going to be up to you. But those are the usual ways people get in. And you fly into Bishkek and I meet you at the airport. That's And then after that, the way we arrange travel is we take care of everything. It's actually simpler because because of the language, unless someone shows up who already speaks, you know, Russian or Kyrgyz, it's easier if I just deal with everything. So we take care of lodging, meals, transportation. Obviously, we're the guide and translator activities, the whole thing. It's just easier if you present one package price, so to speak, to the guest, and then I deal with everything else, as opposed to trying to multiple cases of trying to translate and all that. It just gets so much more difficult, I think. Different people prefer different approaches. That's how we do things. Okay. I think that would make sense for our family. So we call the day that we arrive in whatever destination is our sea legs day. We're typically, some of us sleep better on the flights than others. Some people need to take a a cat nap of varying lengths and others are anxious to get out there and and drink in the the new environment. So how do you view the sea leg day typically? What would you recommend for somebody traveling from New York City, for example? Answer on that one is it's going to depend on the client. And I would try to sort that out with them in advance. It's possible to break up that first day. So fortunately, there's a really pretty national park, like just an hour south of Bishkek. And it's got some gorgeous hiking, some gorgeous photography opportunities. So what you can do with day one, so to speak, is when people get off the jet, because normally, yeah, there's some jet lag, especially if you're coming from North America. That's just a long way. And you could say, okay, I can take you to a guest house here in the city, and you can crash if you want. We don't necessarily recommend it, but you can. We've generally found it's better, especially coming from the West, if you try and stay on your feet that first day as long as you can. Mm-hmm. But 
different folks are going to have different responses. Got that. So the first day, what we would normally suggest is we take you in to drop the luggage at the house, get some chow in you. And then after that, we can, if you want, we can do one of two things. Normally, what I would suggest is taking people to this national park, do a light day hike, see how they're going to adjust to some of the altitude. That's actually a bit of a concern. This is a very high, very dry country. Tom, you mentioned our trade school there on top of a mountain outside of Colorado Springs. Remember how we used to chuckle at the thought of schools coming to play our teams from low elevations or sea level? And we just, <laughs> this is going to be fun, right? About third quarter or something. We try to avoid that happening to our guests <laughs> when, they, when they arrive in Kyrgyzstan. And so we, the light hike in the park gives us a chance to say, okay, how are you feeling? How are you doing? Is it affecting you? Do we need to you know, go back to the city and you can rest a little bit. How are you doing? That kind of, Give you a little bit of time. Ideally, you'd have days or weeks to get used to the climate. But this is normally how we try to uh, get folks used to the attitude and, and the dryness, how dry the atmosphere is. Remember how dry Colorado was? Like that only more. Okay. The other thing we can do on day one, and again, it varies by both interest level and how folks are feeling, basically, is there's quite a bit of shopping opportunities for Kyrgyz handicrafts, which are amazing. You can see some examples of that on our website as well. Felt products. On a country with this many uh, shepherds, some of the felt work you, you will see is amazing. Now, there'll be other opportunities to shop later on, but if folks really want to, we can do that on day one. Chance to walk around the city of Bishkek and, and see some of uh, the older monuments and the architecture. There are a few museums, but not, how can I say this? If you're expecting the Hermitage in St. Petersburg, different town, but that's not to say that a walking tour around some of the parts of downtown is without value. We've done that. So it depends on which of those two options, which of those two directions the guests feel up for. And if you've got like the younger folks really want to go see the park and the more senior of us, uh, headed there myself these days, the more senior of us want to say, yeah, let's hang out downtown or I want to go shopping. I need to get a birthday gift for cousin Tilly, whatever. We can make both of those happen. I just would need to let some of my folks know in advance, okay, you're going to take the group hiking and I will go downtown or vice versa, depending on who's available for what. Just again, advanced planning is the key to making a lot of this work. Certainly. And so I think one of so let's visualize this trip. We've gotten there, had a great first day, perhaps checking out the lake, and we'll include a link to all these uh, to your website and, and all these destinations so they can visualize some of these places in our show notes. So we've got our good first night's sleep. We've begun to peek at some of the high alpine meadows. What do you recommend for that first full day when we get our um, sea legs and a good night's sleep? I've got a penciled in here a loose idea for it's a somewhat shorter version of one of the first trips that's on our website. So that's nine days, and I think it allows a little more breathing room, but for the sake of a week, I've tried to condense it a little bit, and let me step through it here, and we can talk about how it works and see what you think of it. So day one, like I said, get over the jet lag, you can go to the park, you can go shopping, and then hopefully early bedtime that night, so to speak, and allows folks to rest and recuperate, because folks really do you see a lot of different responses to jet lag. And even an individual on one trip to Australia might be fine. And then on the next trip to Europe, they're like, oh Lord, where's the coffee, please? It, it just, you see a lot of variation. But so day one is that. Day two would be to that I would suggest in the central Narin region. Very, it's a, it's called a village. It's actually about 20,000 people. So it's a big village, villages go. And there I would arrange, again, this is giving a little more time for folks to get used to the altitude. I would arrange some folk music and Sherdock making demonstrations. 
So you can see some of the handicrafts at work. You can learn how to do it yourself. They love to teach folks how to do it. The folks that we work with there, it's, yeah, you want to learn how to make this? I'm amazed that they still can, they've been doing this for so long and they're so good at it. They can eyeball some of these really intricate designs that they use for rug making. Just like eyeball it, chalk it out, cut it out. It's like, bang, how'd you do that? I need a pattern. And even then I'd probably screw it up. Really impressive. I happen to really enjoy the local folk music. And so far, all of my guests have. I've been told on more, I want to say more than one occasion, that the folk music demonstration with a group I know of in this village is one of the, if not the highlight of the trip. Because it's also a chance to hear, for example, their tremendous oral poetry tradition. Kyrgyz wasn't a written language until 1926. So it's very much an oral culture. And that is folks tend to rely on memory, oral stories, that sort of thing, rather than I'll go look it up in a book, which is what, for example, most of the West tends to. And as a result, you see some tremendous, the example I'm thinking of is called the Manasepic. So picture somebody reciting from memory Homer's Iliad, an epic poem longer than that. Actually, it's the world's longest epic poem. It's called the Epic of Manas. And you will find even young children, 10, 12-year-old boys, who can recite huge chunks of this epic poem from memory. It's really impressive to see. And then there's the other folk music with a variety of instruments developed in the area. It tends to be a highlight. So that's what I would do on day two. Day three and four and into five, this is the part I tell folks that if you really want to understand Kyrgyz culture, if you want to understand Central Asian culture to a large extent, then you cannot separate the people from the horse. To, you cannot overemphasize the importance of the equestrian tradition to Kyrgyz culture. It's what provided the nomad with his no mobility. It's what provided the hunter with his, again, mobility. You just can't overemphasize it. And so if you want to understand it, then the best way to do that is spend some time in the saddle. And one of the things we have been fortunate to do is we found, it's taken some time, but we found some great folks to work with. And so we have put everybody from small children to 76-year-old grandparents on horseback. And we take it in short chunks, break it up as need be, longer or shorter as necessary. And that's how we go into the mountains, usually. Again, we can go on foot if folks want. It depends on the individual. But we can go up into the mountains that way. And so what I would do for day three and four is, again, this breaking up in chunks, couple-day horse trek. And, and then on the evenings of three and four, that's when you would get a chance to stay in a yurt. And again, this is seeing not just a part of Kyrgyz culture. It's not just a, this isn't just for tourists. So for example, on this particular trip, I'm thinking of going up past a pass into, into this one particular high alpine lake called Songkhold. Yeah, the folks we're staying with now, he's, last I checked, he's gotten out of shepherding and just as the tourist thing full time. But like a hundred yards away, all of his neighbors are still doing the shepherding thing because that's what they did. That's how he got into it. And he and his family were good at hospitality. And the next thing, the hospitality was actually paying better than the shepherding. So now he just does that full time, but he's in the same place he was before and using the same yurts. It's just more of them now. I think he's up to three, four. Anyway. And so you get a chance to see not just like living history at a national park or something, but this is how a lot of folks there, I think the, the estimate I saw is like 30 to 40% are still shepherds. They still do this for about six months out of the year. 
this is how folks live. And this is how, in many ways, they have lived literally for millennia. And this is one of the things about living here that appeals to the historian. Okay, until you get the DeLorean out of the shop, how do you go see the past? I found a way to do it. It's called Kyrgyzstan. And I love it. So the second night after cross, first night you spend that just below this one pass. Second night you'd spend up at this Alpine. Bring two cameras. I, I tell all of my guests, bring two cameras. You're going to wear out at least one. It's that pretty. Every time I go around to Ben and you think, wow, Lord, thank you for showing me the most beautiful spot I will ever see in my life. Then you turn the bend and go, Lord, check that. Let's, yeah, I just, it got better. I hadn't thought it possible, but it just got better. That happens a lot. So we'd spend night four at this lake. And then there you can get it off, stretch your legs, just walk around, some great photography opportunities, some wide open spaces uh, for the uh, children, especially if you got younger kids. If they want a chance to run around and be rambunctious, have we got a place for them to do it? It's fantastic. Day five, we would leave by car from this lake down a different road than the one we came up, obviously. And we would head to a smaller village down by a much larger alpine lake. Actually, it's one of the largest in the world. But there's a village on the shores of this very large alpine lake. The name of this village is called Kizzle 2. And the village has a particular industry. They make yurts by hand in their backyard. We know one family that does that. I want to say that there's other families in the same village that's what they do that's it's actually on the sign as you come into the village this is their thing welcome to the yurt making capital of, of the uh, province so to speak and it would there we have a chance to we'll be staying in another yurt obviously but you get to see how they're made by hand in these backyard in this shop and also it's a chance to rest because some folks may be a little tuckered after the horse time i get it if folks are interested and depending on the season there's also fish in the river right behind this particular house that feeds down into the lake. So there's something for everybody in this particular stop. And it's, I think it's a really nice place to, to let folks see, look, this is how things are done. Okay, so that's day five. Day six, day six is, would be very full. From there, we would move on to another village on the south side of this enormous lake. And there, depending on folks' interest, we could do a number of things. I know some, in a couple different villages, the village Kokbaru or Ulak Tartish team. And if you know what that is, in, in Afghanistan, it's called Buzkaji. If folks want to, we can arrange a demonstration game, a scrimmage of this sport. And what it is, it's called goat polo, but it basically try to imagine ice hockey or rugby on horseback with a goat for the ball. And then when you're done, the ball becomes supper. And they make it into something called Kordak, which is, it's amazing. It'll melt in your mouth. It's, well, somebody figured out how to tenderize goat. They really did. And it, it's really good. That goat's very tender. You have to put my daughter in the hospital after this. <laughs> <laughs> you have a teenage girl. She loves goats. I don't think she could handle it. <laughs> Some folks like it. I like it. But we can also, like I said, we can do other things as well. For example, on that same road going in there, there is uh, a canyon called Skazka Canyon, which is the Russian word for fairy tale. And when you see this, you see why. It's sandstone, but it's been carved into some by wind and water into some of the most amazing shapes. It's really astonishing to see. It's, wow, I get where they got the name from, right? The minute you see it. 
and that's a bit of a again another light, nice light day hike. Normally we spend about an hour or so there, but folks can spend longer. Really impressive, and again, bring that extra camera. Lots of opportunities. So depending on what folks want to do, we can vary the schedule up uh, for different folks' interest level or or what they're comfortable. Well, easy enough. Okay, great. So speaking about the food. A little bit about the food, very briefly. But how would you go about with the picky eaters and the allergies that would be coming about going to these small villages? How would we accommodate that? And we've obviously dealt with that, and I think successfully. Okay, okay so that would be day six. And then day seven, day seven would be a long day. And I, when you said oh, prior to take doing this podcast, you sent me this list of questions, Tom, and you said work out a week. So I took the liberty of using all seven days. And the assumption is you fly out on day eight. And as it is, it's still kind of crowded. Day seven would be in a town called Caracol, the far end of this big alpine lake, which is called Isakol. It means hot lake. You could obviously look it up on the internet. Isakol doesn't freeze, hence the name hot lake. The water itself is actually pretty cold because it's all glacier runoff. But because it's so deep, it's a saline lake, it doesn't freeze. So it doesn't freeze all winter long. So hence the name. Anyway, so we, we would go to this last town village. Um, not sure what it's officially called, called Caracol. There are some museums there, one in particular dedicated to the early structure of the Kyrgyz language. Another one there dedicated to the Imperial Russian army officer named Przewalski. If you've heard of Przewalski's horse, the last wild horse left in the world, that's that same Przewalski. So there's a museum there dedicated to his boring area on behalf of Imperial Russia back in the day. Obviously plenty of photography opportunities. So it's nestled, going back to the Colorado reference again, if you remember Summit County, you got this town surrounded by mountains. Okay, picture that with a really big, beautiful, clear alpine lake off to one side instead of just more mountains. Okay, so the photography is just dialed up to 11, right? Very pretty. And then after that, Turn around and go back to Bishkek, which unfortunately would necessitate about six-ish hours, seven hours, maybe driving all at once, which normally I would prefer to stretch out over multiple days, break up with other stops. But given the time constraints, mm-hmm. that's how you make all that work. So the last day involves some photography, but an awful lot of driving and a late arrival back in Bishkek. Again, you know, the good news is in Kyrgyzstan, there's a lot to see and do. Bad news is there's a lot to see and do, and that means a lot of ground to cover in only one week. How do you cope? And then on the 8th, for a night in Bishkek, on the 8th, you'd fly back out to wherever home was for you. Okay. Does that kind of give you an idea of what what could be done in a week? Absolutely. It's tremendous. It is. And I think that you're saying a 10-day vacation would be the ideal, you know, Uh, time Much, much to be preferred. Much to be preferred. Because... Honestly, everything I've said can be done in seven days, but you're probably better off with a few extras. The expense isn't that great additionally, at least I don't think so. I think it makes for a more relaxed and a better experience and something to think about. It means more time being able to chit-chat with folks you meet. And especially, remember what I said about the whole multi-generational thing? You're going to make friends and they're going to want to talk. I'm grateful for what you guys are doing to because I would like to see anything that keeps a family together and helps them grow closer together, I think is a good thing. And I think travel can very much be exactly what you've just described and a very good thing. When we started this podcast, I said, Kyrgyzstan, Uh, not sure we'll be going. But I ended this podcast going, wow, I can't wait to go to Kyrgyzstan. So this concludes part one with another episode focused on other aspects of Kyrgyzstan. 
be sure to listen to part two. Also, if you enjoyed, please click subscribe.